Welcome to the Exponential View podcast. I'm Azim Azar, the curator of Exponential View. In today's podcast, I'm really excited to interview Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Jeff is one of the world's foremost thinkers on economic development. He advises the United Nations and a host of governments. He's been called the economist to the poor. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talk about being optimists, the progress of technology, the challenge of inequality, the benefits and risks of artificial intelligence. We even managed to spend a few minutes talking about Aristotle. Before we get started, please go and look us up on Twitter. We're at Exponential View. And once you've enjoyed this podcast, do take a moment to share it with three friends. Jeff and I met in the quietest spot we could, a hotel lobby. You'll hear some background noise, but I hope it won't detract from his deep thinking and scintillating arguments. So please relax and enjoy the conversation. Good morning, and I'm with uh, Professor Jeffrey Sachs, who is one of the world's foremost political scientists and economists and a recognized leader in development economics and the fight against poverty. Uh, he's been described as the poor man's economist and for nearly 15 years was the director of the Earth Institute in the US. He's a titanic intellect and a driving force behind many global initiatives on sustainable development. So I could go on and on. I'm a bit of a fanboy. Uh, Jeff, uh, good morning to you. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Well, we're in a grey London today, um, and I gather you spent the start of the year in sunnier climes in uh, Aslamar, a, a beach resort in California. What were you doing there apart from catching some sun? Well, that was actually pretty windswept uh, also, so we caught a lot of rain, but it was a great uh, seminar uh, called the Beneficial AI. Uh, it was uh, a group of leading artificial intelligence uh, experts, uh, AI industry leaders, some philosophers, uh, an economist or two, uh, discussing the future of artificial intelligence and its impacts on society. Uh, I spoke about the impacts on the economy, uh, and a big concern, of course, was the question of singularity and the possibility of uh, dangerous AI, runaway uh, robots, uh, the Westworld uh, vision, uh, and um, that was a, a, a considerable part of the discussion, but a great conference. So, so you were there as an economist, uh, and, and tell me what, what did you take away, or what is your perspective on the impact of AI on the economy? I think that uh, AI is going to have, uh, and indeed already is having, a pervasive effect on uh, every part of the economy. I'm a big technophile. I'm a big fan of. Uh, uh, the digital revolution in general. I've worked in some of the poorest places in the world and I've seen what a simple uh, mobile connectivity and uh, broadband connectivity can mean for finance, for governance, for health, for education, uh, for uh, countless uh, business sectors, precision agriculture, and so many others. And I think we're still at an early stage uh, where we're going to see massive advances in technology and massive disruptions in the economy. I've been thinking about this as a, a theorist or a conceptual uh, point of view in recent years uh, around the question that a lot of people are asking if if the robots and, and the smart systems can do everything that humans can do, what does that mean for the economy? And it's a very interesting and very tricky question, actually. Right. So, so we will get onto that question about what happens to to the workers when the robots can, can do everything. But just starting in, in first principles again, thinking about an audience maybe which is very strong on the technology and less strong on the 
economics. Let's go through the argument as to why AI actually it helps economies. What is it that automation does that makes us get wealthier? Because it's a, it's a pa pattern we've seen for thousands of years. In fact, but what is actually that dynamic from the perspective of an economist? In fact, if you look at the history of economies uh, going back as far as we know something about them, and that's back, I would say, to uh, the Greek uh, and, and the Roman times, um, technology has been the main driver of progress. In fact, I could say that the first great revolution, of course, was the agricultural revolution, the Neolithic revolution 10,000 years ago. <laughs> that created a, a world of villages uh, and uh, then towns after uh, our long uh, sojourn as hunters and gatherers uh, as a species. Uh, then it came uh, further advances, uh, the plow, the wheel, the chariot, uh, and so forth. And uh, history and economics uh, can be viewed to a significant extent as the uh, progress of technology and its diffusion. Uh, what we know from economic history is that there was actually a long, long period of very slow technological change on the whole, followed by the last two centuries of unending, amazing, brilliant uh, advances of technology, uh, starting with the steam engine, uh, then uh, the locomotive, uh, uh, ocean uh, steamers, uh, the telegraph, the internal combustion engine, the age of electricity, mm -hmm. uh, automobile aviation, and that revolution of technology and what we call endogenous growth, meaning that technologies give rise to new technologies, give rise to new technologies, has kept the world economy growing mm -hmm. at a significant rate for two centuries now. Uh, we now have a big, rich world that economists uh, estimate at about $125 trillion of annual output around the world if you add up the market uh, production everywhere in the world, the gross world product. That's pretty impressive for 7.5 billion people. Uh, it it means that we're already at an average income of maybe sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars per capita, mm -hmm. roughly speaking, uh, in what we call purchasing power adjusted terms. Uh, the world's gotten awfully rich. There's been a, a great reduction of poverty rates around the world, mm -hmm. uh, and technology it has played the core role in that process for two hundred years. Each generation has had its own revolution. If we were in the 1780s, we'd be marveling at James Watt's steam engine. Mm -hmm. and if we were in the 1870s, we'd be marveling at Daimler and Benz's internal combustion engine. Or uh, in the early 20th century at the Wright brothers' uh, biplane. Or the Harbour Bosch process. Uh, so, my, my exactly. So, uh, yeah. the, the invention of uh, how to... Uh, take uh, atmospheric nitrogen and make the fertilizer that uh, made it possible to grow food for a booming world population. But so our revolution, uh, yes, go ahead, uh, I was going to say, yeah. uh, now has been in the works for uh, about uh, 80 years. Uh, it's the modern age of computation mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the digital revolution. And one could look back to Alan Turing, 
uh, and uh, his breakthroughs, uh, and then uh, the invention of uh, the architecture of modern computing of John von Neumann in the 1940s, and then, of course, the invention of the transistor uh, in 1947, which uh, allowed uh, real modern computers to take hold. And we've been in the path of zeros and ones uh, of uh, the digitization of information now for more than a half a century, and the pace is simply astounding of what has been accomplished and what continues to be accomplished uh, year after year uh, in, in this remarkable revolution. So we're in the midst of one of the most exciting uh, revolutions. What we know, and what I could say as an uh, economic historian, is that every technological revolution has upended the way we live. Uh, it has changed the distribution of income. It has changed the distribution of global power. Uh, it, it has uh, done many wonderful things. It's created many uh, uh, even horrific risks uh, at times. And uh, our technology revolution, uh, made possible by Moore's Law and by uh, related uh, leaps of uh, computational uh, and communications capacity, are, are also having profound effects uh, on national economies and on, on world geopolitics. I mean, it, it's an amazing story, technology. Uh, it really is, and you've summed it up beautifully. But in, in the context of all of that, what we see, and I think you allude to some of this in your new book, and I think other people have written about this and other risks, we see falling wages, we see a concentration of market power, we see a shift in rewards from labour to capital, and we see the emergence of new classes of uh, platform monopolies. Uh, how significant are those risks in terms of uh, political, uh, on a political basis or geopolitical basis? The dominant point of good new technologies is they make it possible to do more things uh, in the world. They raise productivity and uh, in the vernacular they increase the economic pie. But the other fact of technology is that they change the way the pie is sliced, mm -hmm. the distribution of income. And it seems that the digital revolution is no different in this regard. It's raising the world economy. Uh, it is making it possible for giant economies like India and China to achieve growth of 7% per year. That means a doubling every decade. And China was even faster than that, 10% uh, per year for more than 30 years, meaning a doubling every seven years, mm -hmm. in fact. Without this revolution of communications and computation and information management, that simply would have been impossible. So there's lots of good news. But the distributional consequences uh, are also very pertinent, and they tend uh, somewhat to be underemphasized in until recently at least, because there was a feeling that technology is uh, like uh, the rising sea that lifts all boats, that it's pretty automatic, that if you have an improvement in our ability to do things, everybody benefits. That's possible, and surely there have been technologies like that, but there also have been technologies that replace work. Uh, they substitute for work rather than complement it. They don't just put tools in the hands of workers, they put uh, today robots in place of workers. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, uh, that 
can seriously uh, affect the distribution of income. Now we're entering more speculative territory because this is a newer phenomenon, but I'm within the group of economists that believes that these technological changes are already uh, causing a drop of demand for large groups of workers, up until now, especially relatively lower skilled workers mm -hmm. whose uh, work, say, on the assembly line, quite obviously, can be replaced by a robot, or whose work in clerical tasks or routinized tasks or monitoring tasks mm -hmm. can be replaced by smart systems. My view is that uh, that kind of substitution is likely to not only continue with more and more swaths of jobs uh, coming uh, under uh, the uh, substitution sway of uh, smart systems, but that it's also going to affect uh, what are now considered highly skilled jobs. Uh, take uh, the job of uh, legal research in the United States. It's quite clear that this is already being replaced by automatic search engines, uh, what used right. to be done by rather well-trained Mm -hmm. uh, paralegals, uh, or take uh, the job of radiologists, mm -hmm. which is a highly trained profession. The cover story of nature and science uh, rather regularly, actually, in recent months right. has said uh, we can now detect skin cancers or uh, do uh, eye scans or uh, other imaging uh, as well or better by expert systems. And I'm uh, of the view that my own job and my own profession of uh, being an economist, at least large parts of it, are going to be better done by computers quite soon. Right. I absolutely cannot keep up with the thousands of journals that are relevant to the fields that I work on. Mm -hmm. But I know that my computer, if uh, properly trained, yeah. could help find the keywords and identify the right research and identify local trends better than I possibly can. Mm. And I'm happy to uh, go into the business of helping to train uh, my computer to do that. Uh, right. But uh, eventually it's going to have my job. Well, so, so that raises an, an, an interesting question, which is the coupling of uh, of jobs to to one's own sense of well-being and one's own sense of of income. Uh, and, and I think in your uh, Asalama lecture, you talk about uh, that on average, the adult American works three and a half hours a day, and we deliver $55,000 of annual output for that, which is pretty remarkable. Yes. And I think what you're doing there is, is a calculation that you're taking you know, the total income by the total working population. So that average includes people who are not working. That's correct. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, what uh, the data show is the following. Uh, the uh, U.S. government does a time-use survey every yeah. year, and they ask uh, all Americans 16 years and older, mm -hmm. uh, are you at work, are you at school, how do you allocate your time? And now it's a, a bit over three hours uh, per day on average that uh, Americans 16 and over are actually at work. Uh, some of uh, the rest of the time is being at school, uh, mm -hmm. some is being at home, Right. Leisure time, television watching, sports, uh, uh, entertainment, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, now, the U.S. economy is about an $18 trillion uh, gross domestic product. That's mm. how much output yeah. the U.S. produces. And we have 325 million adults. So 
that's uh, roughly uh, around $55,000 for each American, including the children, including the retirees, and so forth. My uh, feeling is that it's pretty darn remarkable uh, that out of a little more than three hours a day, uh, we're able to generate this phenomenal wealth. And what does it mean, in fact? Well, those Americans at work, just to understand this more precisely, are working on average seven-hour days when they're at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not that uh, you go in and drop in exactly, but we have retirees, we have students, we have uh, mothers uh, and and fathers uh, on home leave for various reasons, and we can support all of that uh, without... Actually, even too many Americans literally breaking a sweat because the kind of work that's done is also qualitatively completely different from being uh, a farm worker or a mine worker or a construction worker or a stevedore or a manual laborer uh, 115 years ago at the start of the 20th century. So my view is we really are moving to societies, uh, at least in the rich world, where life is extremely pleasant because what we call work, that's what we're doing right now. We're having a great conversation with each other in a very nice place, having a cup of coffee, and I'm not breaking a sweat. I'm just enjoying talking with you. And this is what a lot of what we call work really is right now. Mm -hmm. And in addition, uh, in a well-run country like uh, a Sweden or a Norway or a Denmark, which I regard as the best-run countries in the world, they have maybe six weeks vacation time. Right. Uh, so you're off in the uh, North Sea Archipelago uh, enjoying yourself uh, this time with, with nature, yep. with your family, or if you have a child, you have maybe nine months of uh, mm-hmm. maternity or uh, paternity leave. And this, I think, is what productivity makes possible. Now, Certain things have to be said immediately, and that is that um, never gloat. There are people that are suffering badly uh, in poor countries. People are in backbreaking labor, living shorter lives, and having a hell of a time in, in uh, many cases. And this is why it's insane to leave aside the challenge of ending poverty and uh, finishing up the job of development. And within U.S. society... We also have uh, the really grave paradox, and grave is probably the right word, of booming quality of life among the rich. More leisure, Mm -hmm. uh, more opportunities, more travel, and a rising death rate, actually, of uh, middle-aged white, in other words, not minority, uh, Americans uh, with the opiate epidemic, with the rising suicide rates and so forth. So what I interpret that to be, broadly speaking, is that we're getting richer on average, we're getting more productive, the chance for quality of life is higher and higher, but the income distributional impacts are pretty tough mm-hmm. and so far in the U.S. have been ignored. In other words, uh, the tech companies have boomed in capital value. We've created new swaths of billionaires. Uh, we've created a lot of uh, high-income uh, Americans. A lot of the uh, my friends uh, from 
uh, high school or college days uh, went off to become programmers and uh, had an absolutely splendid uh, run financially out of this. A few became billionaires, um, and uh, my uh, one of one of my. Uh, Camp friends uh, from junior high school was Steve Ballmer, uh, so oh, wow. he, he did okay. he did pretty well. Uh, and um, we went to math camp together, actually. Uh, and uh, uh, you know what happened to him. So, um, but for a lot of Americans, this ironically is a time that they can't find good work, mm-hmm. uh, that wages are falling, that computers really are taking their jobs, uh, and to an extent uh, that uh, workers overseas are taking their job. Though I think that that argument is an exaggerated one. I think most of the uh, decline of manufacturing workers uh, has been uh, especially uh, through uh, technology rather than uh, offshoring, although the processes are, are to some extent uh, related. Can, can I ask this question sure. about, about distribution, though? So we're, we're getting richer. We have these technologies and systems that get us richer. Why is the... Uh, equality questions so hard to to solve. Over the last 40 years, we've seen various inequality measures in, uh, in many countries, in the, the US and the UK and elsewhere, move in favor of inequality in the very, very rich levels we haven't seen since the 20s. We've seen this 15% shift over the last 40 years of income going to the owners of capital rather than labor. And yet we're richer than we've ever been in nearly every country in the world. Uh, what is it about the equality problem that makes it so difficult to, to solve? I think the problem is um, solvable, and a few countries have solved it. And the best way to understand the problem is to look at the measure of inequality called the Gini coefficient, which is a, uh, a measure between zero and one. Zero measures complete equality, and a, a score of one means complete inequality, which is one person would have all the income and everybody else would have nothing. And real societies are in between zero and one. If you have a score of something like uh, one-fourth, 0.25, you're a very equal society, and that's where Denmark sits. Mm-hmm. And if you have a score of, say, 0.45, which is about the U.S. scene, uh, that's a quite high inequality, and if you have a score of 0.6, uh, like uh, Brazil uh, or uh, countries in Africa, that's just uh, enormous inequality. So this measure can be measured in two ways, and I think it's really helpful. One is you measure the inequality of the market income, what people take home in their paychecks, basically, and that's called the market genie. And the other is you measure the income of the household after it's paid its taxes and after it's received the benefits from the state. You impute in uh, health and education and uh, also the direct income transfers and so forth. So that is the uh, net uh, disposable income genie. In all countries, the income inequality of disposable income is less inequality than the income uh, inequality of market income because governments do more tax the rich and more give to the poor, and so they tend to redistribute a bit of the income. But there's a huge, huge difference in how much redistribution is implied by the fiscal system. The most redistribution is in Northern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, 
Netherlands, Germany, uh, tax a lot mm -hmm. and they distribute a lot. Everybody has health care. Everybody has uh, access to higher education. Everybody has access to child care. Everybody has access to paid vacation. Everybody has access to maternity and paternity leave. In the United States, we tax very little and we redistribute very little. So the gap between the market inequality and the disposable income inequality isn't such a large gap. We don't do much to reduce the inequality that the market produces. So to go back to your question, the tech revolution is raising market inequality because it's raising the wages of skilled workers and lowering the labor demand, the job access, and the earnings of lower skilled workers up until now. If government redistributes the bigger pie, as they do in the social democracies, then you could still have the take-home pay, the disposable income, relatively equal, even though the market inequality has widened. But if you're like the United States, where all of the politics is cut taxes, cut taxes, we don't care about government spending, the poor, you're on your own, uh, tough luck, this is a, you know, a hard knocks uh, society, then we're just going to see rising inequality. That's essentially the U.S. story, which is that the pie has increased, mm -hmm. the redistribution has uh, actually become lesser redistribution, uh, and the result is this historically unprecedented inequality, whereas in Northern Europe, with the very same technological forces at play, the very same globalization at play, the rise of income inequality of disposable income has been quite modest because the social welfare states have really kicked in to make sure that everybody is brought along. Why is it so hard to uh, achieve what uh, a Denmark or a Sweden has achieved? Uh, I think that there are um, a couple of things to say. One is that if the rich basically turn their nose up at the poor, uh, and if the rich really run the politics, uh, then you have the U.S. situation, which is, why should we care? It's a very libertarian ideology. You're on your own. Americans don't like each other very much, and they like each other less and less over time. Uh, most of the rich are not very responsible, um, and uh, they control the politics, and so they've not been interested in income distribution. Uh, this is distinct from say, uh, Northern Europe, where politics is not in the hands of the rich alone, and where the social ethos of equality is much greater, maybe because the ethnic homogeneity is also uh, much greater. Uh, so different political choices. But I would say there's another thing going on, which is that globalization itself is making redistribution somewhat harder, because even in Northern Europe, uh, it's becoming tougher uh, to keep the social welfare state under the theory, at least, that uh, the international mobility of capital means that for us to remain competitive, we just can't go on uh, the way we've gone on before. I think that argument is exaggerated, but there's some truth to the idea that we're in a kind of race to the bottom Absolutely. where each country is cutting its corporate tax rate in order to stay a few notches ahead of the neighbors. And of course, the only way that you end 
uh, there is at zero, and uh, we've already got enough tax havens and uh, uh, enough countries uh, that seemingly are on the way to zero to give us real concern. The reason I say it's an exaggeration is that there are still ways to tax, for instance, through consumption uh, that can survive the global competitive forces. But maybe it does mean that we're going to shift the kinds of taxes we have from corporate-based to consumption-based or VAT-based much more. But what, one problem with consumption taxes, I guess, is that they tend to weigh heavier on those who spend more of their, their earnings, which tends to be the poor. It could be that uh, consumption taxes are more regressive, but you can make a progressive consumption tax. You can, uh, for example, uh, measure the amount of uh, household consumption in a given year by looking at uh, the change of wealth and the income flows and uh, netting out the consumption part, right. and then saying the first X thousand pounds or dollars is tax-exempt, and above that we right. put on okay. the tax. So you can have what's called a progressive consumption tax. And in this sense, I think it's true to say that uh, we're going to have a restructuring of tax but I still believe that what the social democracies have achieved through high taxation and heavy redistribution leads to a better society. More fair, uh, more people brought along, more social stability than what we have in the United States. Right. So one, one thing that's important in uh, coming up in tech circles is this idea of universal basic income as a solution to technological uh, unemployment. I'm sure you've, you've looked at it. Of course. You have a, you have a view on, on it? Is it our, our panacea, our silver bullet? If you look at, again, my favorite uh, countries, the yeah. Northern European countries, they have universal basic income, mm -hmm. not in the sense of a mandated paycheck mm. per month, but in the sense that everybody gets health care, everybody gets education, everybody gets uh, vacation time, everybody gets uh, maternity uh, and paternity leave, everybody gets uh, child uh, care, uh, poor households get child support. It adds up to a basic income. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe the incentive structure is uh, better than simply giving out the cash because uh, you, you have to show that you're ready to work. Uh, it's not complete freebie. You can't be a total freeloader in society. <clears throat> but the idea that everybody deserves dignity and a basic income, I think, is is a right idea. Mm. Uh, what's also true is that 50 years ago, actually, it's uh, 125 years ago, Bismarck had the idea that the elderly were poor, mm -hmm. and therefore uh, workers should uh, pay for the social support of the elderly who couldn't work and Social Security became a universal transfer. Now what the logic of AI says is that it's the young people who are hurting, yes, still support uh, older people, but the real transfers need to go from the older, wealthy people to the younger workers whose only endowment in life right now is labor that has less and less market right. value. And so we need transfers from old to young, no longer the net direction of transfers from young to old. And this is, you could call it UBI, you could call it uh, reverse social security, you could call it a demigrant mm -hmm. or a demogrant where uh, each member of the demos of, of the population at birth is given a certain capital allocation. 
Right. I think of it as uh, if robots are going to do everything, everybody should be endowed with a robot to start out. Uh, right. And so, in, in effect, you can do that by saying, I'll give you the financial wherewithal to make sure you have your equity stake in the robotic economy. Right. If we don't do that, then it's obviously easy to imagine a dystopia in which the robots do everything. A few people own the robots, and mm-hmm. those that don't uh, effectively become either uh, immiserized, impoverished, or the slaves of the others. And uh, there's a lot of science fiction in that direction, but it's got a, a bit of economic merit. And you, I think you can also so see, hear sniffs of that when you think about the opioid academic, uh, epid- epidemic or the growth of the millennial who sits in mom's basement playing video games all day. You know, it's, a, it's the Panem and Sakenzis of the, the modern economy. Yeah, I think the, this uh, um, worry is part of the story of uh, the backlash that we have uh, underway right now. Uh, no one's paid too much attention to any of this, but clearly there are some people hurting. Right. Uh, and um, and there are a lot of uh, unemployed young people, and uh, it's, it's really remarkable and paradoxical that in an age of objectively speaking more and more and plenty mm-hmm. uh, and you just see it walk around London or New York uh, there's more wealth than is imaginable and yet like you say people are sitting home with nothing to do no income earned and uh, often in uh, some desperation so one one question I wanted to um, touch on is the role of the entrepreneur in all of this I mean we know that governments have historically played a significant role in often taking enormous and unfounded risks that led to things like silicon chips and rocket technologies and batteries. And Mariana Mazzucato has done a lot of great work around this. We also know that governments play a good role, great role in providing a rule of law and the enforcement of contract and all the sorts of things that entrepreneurs uh, need. Do you think entrepreneurs have a role in, in addressing some of the, the potential downsides? We know that they are part of the engine that creates the growth, and, uh, but what is the responsibility of an entrepreneur? And in the current structure of capital, in particular venture capital, which changes, chases outsized returns rather than median returns, um, does that construct the right uh, incentives to align entrepreneurs to solve the real problems? I'm basically uh, a congenital optimist. So I'm basically uh, of the view that we're going to get around to do the right thing and the right thing I define as creating a sustainable development economy. A sustainable development economy means an economy that is productive, but also fair and also environmentally sustainable. In in my new book, I call it the uh, smart, fair, sustainable economy uh, as the three uh, adjectives that are important. And I think for an entrepreneur, there are both... Uh, moral responsibilities to contribute to a smart, fair, sustainable economy. I don't believe in businesses saying, well, it's not against the law to pollute, so I'm going to wreck uh, the environment. I think that that is uh, an ethically unacceptable form of business. Um, but I would also say that smart entrepreneurship, and that's because I'm an optimist, says look forward to where we're going, don't look backward. If I Take uh, Donald Trump. I don't know where he's looking exactly, but if you uh, assume that he's in looking, the mirror, uh, he's looking very good. <laughs> he's looking at himself. Yeah. But if if he's looking at the economy at all, he's thinking about an economy of the 1980s and 1990s. He's mm-hmm. thinking about 
brick and mortar. He's thinking about uh, pipelines of gas and oil. Uh, he's got the wrong model. Uh, maybe not surprising for a septuagenarian uh, anyway uh, of, of his ilk who spent more time looking in the mirror. Um, but it's not the forward model. For an entrepreneur or venture capitalist looking forward, I'd say, my God, of course don't invest in the Keystone Pipeline. Mm -hmm. That's absurd. That's the first way to bankruptcy. It's also not something you want to feel very proud of owning. Uh, rather, invest in the smart grid, invest in the share economy, invest in uh, artificial intelligence systems. Uh, understand that there will be public pressures towards more fairness and towards environmental sustainability. So better to be on the right side of history than the wrong side of history. And if I'm right that we're going to get there, uh, you'll get there first and you'll get the uh, first mover advantage uh, out of all of that. So to my mind, good business and smart, fair, sustainable business are, are really the same thing. We had a big fight in the U.S. It continues, uh, of course. It's, it's a fight everywhere. Should universities divest from coal, oil, and mm -hmm. gas? And I'm very much in favor of our endowments divesting from coal, oil, and gas. Had we done so three or four years ago, we would have scored big gains because uh, we would have uh, surmounted uh, the losses that came with the collapse of oil prices Absolutely. and with the bankruptcy of the coal industry. I think it's a good example that uh, sustainable investing was smart investing, yeah. uh, and most uh, of the large universities rejected that, said, oh, no, we need balanced portfolios. We need uh, to continue to invest in oil and gas. A lot of their board members uh, have links to the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just unwise because you could look and say, we're just not able to use all of those hydrocarbons or all of those right. fossil fuels. So how can you possibly think that investing in Peabody coal is a good idea? It isn't. Well, what's interesting about what happened with that those carbon decisions was that you, you've outlined one um, uh, sort of uh, path. So the second thing that was going on, which was even in conservative economic circles, the principle of polluter pays uh, and, and polluter pays being proposed by, there's an alliance called the Blue-Green Alliance. Blue is conservative in, yep. in the UK. It's a, the Blue-Green are kind of conservative uh, in, environmentalists. Uh, and you've also talked a lot about that businesses need to stop repudiating their externalities. When we look at the, like the issue of carbon externalities, the market has tra transpired in such a way that I can recognize economic loss if I continue to invest in carbon. But if we look at the externalities of technological unemployment, which is that the unemployed live in societies that start to break down, I saw that divorce rates on families that don't have Medicare are higher than those that do. Mm -hmm. And so trust breaks down and there are problems in essentially what are the fringes of San Francisco and New York. Yeah, the Appalachians, those externalities don't come back to bite us the way the carbon externalities yes. do. And if the, the, the new pollution is going to be the, the social costs that are ignored around technological unemployment, what motivates a, a, a modern entrepreneur other than their own sense of ethics to take steps to, to think about that? I think that uh, you're making a, a great point. Uh, that kind of externality is um, not really uh, capturable uh, in a corrective tax, for example, uh, of, of the usual uh, kind, let's price carbon. Well, you can't price social disarray the same way. It has to be 
corrected by a more conventional tax. Mm -hmm. I would say the job of the entrepreneur is to say uh, a very unusual sentence in general is, come tax me. Uh, I plan to make money, but uh, I also want to pay taxes so that we end up with a civilization that works. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of the specific design of products, there is a view that was discussed uh, on Asilomar, for example, that uh, AI should move only in the direction of creating tools for workers, not substitution for workers. I think that that's probably not right and too hard to achieve uh, anyway. Uh, a lot of what artificial intelligence will do will really substitute for workers, not just empower them. Mm -hmm. But my argument to uh, the industry was even that's okay because we like leisure. Mm -hmm. uh, the point is to make sure that everybody can enjoy the, the benefits of this. Don't think only in terms of the job count because if the number of hours worked on average goes from three hours, ten minutes uh, down to two hours uh, in 20 years, that would be progress, not regress, as long as we're fair about it. Right. Which, which I can't let you go now, uh, uh, Jeff, without asking about Aristotle. So Aristotle has been, I, I think in a way, making his way back in the last three or four years. So first of all, just give, give us some 60 seconds on, on why, uh, what, what he's about, and then perhaps explain why you think he's making a resurgence, seems to be. Aristotle is uh, my favorite philosopher, uh, and uh, he wrote a great book 2,300 years ago. In fact, he wrote several of them, uh, but a couple that I really like are the uh, Ethics, or the Nicomachean Ethics, mm -hmm. it's called, and uh, also uh, the Politics. He invented political science, mm -hmm. uh, and his idea was very straightforward, which is that uh, our politics should be about human well-being. Mm -hmm. uh, he took that as a kind of uh, for granted, uh, that society should thrive. And he said that uh, society, in a way, comes first, uh, even before the individual. Today, there are a lot of libertarians. They say, leave me alone. Mm -hmm. uh, Aristotle was quite clear. He says, anyone who tries to live outside of society is uh, either a beast or a god, because <laughs> normal human beings are members of society, dependent on it and contributing to it. And he said, you should be virtuous in the way you relate to Society. So he wrote the ethics about what is virtuous behavior, and he made the argument being virtuous is not only uh, your responsibility, it's the way to a good life. It's the way to a kind of life uh, that is worth living. So both at the individual level and the political level, he said we need to make society work, function for human well-being. And I think uh, we are going to move beyond our libertarian biases, which basically when Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society, they're just individuals. That's the libertarian view. Mm -hmm. uh, it has deep roots in English uh, political philosophy you know, with Thomas Hobbes uh, and onward. But Aristotle had a really different point of view. And he said, uh, we thrive as members of a community. Friendships count. The health of the society counts. And what makes for a good life is being a virtuous uh, member of society, not just a rich individual who 
uh, scorns the others, but a virtuous member of society. So uh, I consider myself an Aristotelian economist, and I'm trying to propagate those ideas as well. well they're, they're, they're fantastic ideas, and I've come across at least two other Aristotelian economists in the, uh, in the last two or three months. So I, I think certainly the, uh, the idea is, is spreading. Um, you have a, a new book out at the moment. So just as a last uh, word, would you tell us the, the title and when it's available and so on? Yeah, the book is called Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. Uh, so it's uh, really trying to get at these three dimensions of sustainable development. Being smart means using our technology and being productive. Being fair means making sure everybody can benefit, and being sustainable means paying attention to the environmental threats that we face. Uh, I wrote it in the weeks up to our election. I didn't uh, quite see what was coming, and nobody did, uh, but in any event, it tries to lay out how America can uh, use uh, trade, how it can use uh, advanced technologies, how it can rebuild infrastructure, how it can make a fairer tax system, uh, in order to achieve sustainable development. And it makes a, a, a proposition that the best way forward is to set some clear goals, like the moonshot for our generation, set goals for 2030 on uh, cutting poverty, on raising life expectancy, on lowering carbon emissions, be clear about them, uh, hold governments accountable towards them, and then use our wonderful technologies and our a huge $18 trillion market economy to drive towards the success of those goals. Fantastic. Well, I'll uh, mention it in the, uh, in, in the newsletter as well. Um, Jeff Sachs from Aristotle to AI. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for listening. I really felt uh, Jeff and I covered some interesting ground there. And on the one hand, the optimism is wonderful and so important, but so is his realism about the importance for entrepreneurs to think really about the context in which they build their businesses. Uh, and I hope that provides some great food for thought. His book is available. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, I'll put a link into it in the newsletter. Sign up at uh, www.exponentialview.co if you haven't done so already. And I uh, look forward to the next podcast. Thanks again. Bye-bye.